Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with two guests. The first is Katie McGinty, Vice President and Chief Sustainability, Government, and Regulatory Affairs Officer at Johnson Controls, and Jim Connaughton, the chairperson of Nautilus Data Technologies. Both Katie and Jim have very distinguished professional histories. Uh, Katie acted as an environmental advisor to Vice President Al Gore and President Bill Clinton, and later served as the secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection in her home state of Pennsylvania, as well as chief of staff to Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. And Jim most recently held leadership roles in the private sector at C3.ai, at Exelon, and at Constellation Energy, and before that served in various federal government roles during the George W. Bush administration, including as chairman of the White House Council on Environmental Quality and director of the White House Office of Environmental Policy. And with those relatively lengthy introductions, I will note that together, uh, Jim and Katie co-chaired an Aspen Institute working group back in 2021 that was focused on addressing barriers to meeting U.S. decarbonization goals, and in particular, how to site and build new clean energy infrastructure at the necessary scale and speed. So this working group of around a dozen policymakers, experts, and practitioners released their final recommendations in June of 2021 in a report titled Building Cleaner Faster. So today, Katie, Jim, and I will be revisiting those recommendations and reviewing how the infrastructure permitting discussion has evolved since then. Stay with us. Katie and Jim, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk with you both today on Resources Radio, and I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Great to be here. It's our great pleasure. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I've shared some details of your professional backgrounds, so I would like to start with a slightly unorthodox introductory question, if you'll humor me, um, maybe something to help our listeners get to know you a little bit more. So if you could have another job besides the ones that I mentioned up above, the ones that you've already had, what would it be? You first, Jim. <laughs> uh, I was going to volunteer you. Um, I would be an oceanographer. <gasps> Fantastic. Oh, I love that. Well, what came to mind for me is totally physical, totally take the hill. So SEAL Team 6. Oof. Oh, my gosh. There we go. Well, I fully believe that either of you could still do either of those things, given how successful you've been. So, you know, I look forward to the next podcast where we talk about those endeavors. <laughs> but, but for now, let's talk about the very interesting and evolving and timely topic of uh, clean energy infrastructure permitting. And, um, and Jim, I, I wanted to start by asking you about the genesis of this Aspen Institute working group. And so my, my understanding is that your original mandate was to discuss kind of the following broad problem statement, and I'll quote here, uh, achieving net zero emissions by 2050 is ecologically essential, technologically feasible, economically achievable, but procedurally impossible. So that's a, you know, a fairly broad statement. Um, and I wonder how that, that conversation evolved into this focus on permitting. Well, so... Uh I was privileged for many, many years to co-chair the uh, Aspen Energy Forum, and uh, that's a group, you know, typically of 50 to 70 people, and, you know, we share lots of different ideas on evolving uh, technology policy and related avenues around the energy equation. And as we began to move past the 
sort of the incentive and the mandate and the international treaty conversations around climate change. An outgrowth of that conversation was just to ask the question, all right, uh, people seem to have settled on net zero by 2050 as a clear and, and explicit uh, objective. What, what does that actually take? So we just ask the question in these sort of informal settings, um, off the record settings, say, what, what does that actually require? And, and I look at it simpler than that, which is how much stuff do you have to build? Um, and so what we quickly came to realize is there was a mismatch between all the stuff we had to build and all the, um, all the existing um, systems that needed to be replaced. Uh, and you know, the, there's a mismatch between that, you know, what was going to be required to get built, and um, what we needed as a matter of process to get to yes on building it all. And so out of that, we created this working group. And Katie was my first call asking if she would co-chair with me this conversation. And she said yes immediately because she understood it immediately. And the two of us then curated um, a group of people that we knew had deep and broad experience uh, in the space of siting, permitting, and interconnecting energy systems. Uh, and we wanted to you know, be sure that it was a nonpartisan conversation uh, inhabited by people with deep expertise at the federal state and local level at the legislative and the executive level and we are very pleased to sign up a great group so when you look at the report you'll you'll see the the signatories and then it included a number of people beyond the signatories and so the idea is let's get together and look at this proposition we came to quick unanimity on the fact that net zero was procedurally impossible mainly because we were all familiar with the fact that there's only so much the bureaucracy can bear in doing permitting and maybe we need to think of a new way of getting to yes on all the projects that we know we need uh, to achieve this very important objective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a great lead in to my question for Katie as well, because it sounds like there were a diversity of sectors and perspectives that were brought into the working group quite purposefully. So I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that diversity of sectors and perspectives and maybe why having those that diversity, those numbers of perspectives was important. Yeah, you bet. And, you know, Jim was not uh, actually kidding or exaggerating in terms of my enthusiasm for the mission. Uh, I said I like to take the hill. So we jumped right in. But I think Jim and I both knew we also had both an opportunity and I would even say an obligation uh, because together we thought we could break through one of the stumbling blocks to progress in this arena, which is, geez, if it's going to go faster, it's going to compromise the environment. And I think think um, for the work we've both been privileged to do, we have a little bit of cred, you know, in terms of our faithfulness to uh, the environmental mission. And that's important in this conversation. Um, you know, to add to some of what Jim said by way of the background, and I think the urgency of the issue, you know, it goes without saying that Mother Nature is shaking her fist, right, in, in a big, big way. Um, but at the same time, we've got a good news, bad news story. Good news is what we're aware of in terms of, thankfully, the plummeting hard costs of renewable energy technology, those solar panels, those windmills that are a tenth, if you will, of the cost that they might have been a couple of decades ago. Unfortunately, the soft costs have skyrocketed at the same time. You know, so where we're seeing those permitting delays, the processing, more than 50% of a project costs. 
you know, where we're seeing instead of the rate of building out distribution and transmission grids accelerating, it's decelerated 50% over the last couple of decades. Uh, grid interconnection instead of, again, accelerating, those approval times are now uh, two to four years uh, so we've got about a terawatt of, of, of good projects sitting and at risk of being lost because PPAs go away or access to land goes away while those projects are just gaining dust. So we were fired up to take this on. Uh, Jim touched on it. Let me elaborate. With the people around the table, we wanted both diversity of perspective and realness of perspective. Um, because for the challenges, there are glimmers of hope. There are models of how we could break through and get stuff done. So we have that grassroots um, perspective at the table, and we had big business at the table. Um, we had brilliant local leadership trying to bring renewables to an urban area, and we had state and federal government uh, and then we had the project developers themselves, renewable projects, um, grid um, expansion and modernization projects. And to round it out, we had the people who write the checks uh, in the investors and the people who keep us looking at the big picture in, in academics. And I think what we were able to do is both have greater clarity of vision in terms of where the problem points are uh, and look, Time and, and, and the delays are a huge problem, but also to see where we could uh, bring forward promising examples to fix that. And last, I think with that diverse group, we were also able to break through some additional uh, myths. And that is, well, geez, local groups just want to slow up or stop projects. No, they actually really want to help own, genuinely own those projects. And I, and I look forward to sharing some of our insights in that regard. But also then that, geez, business just wants to roll back environmental protections. And here it was the opposite. Let us build the stuff that is going to save us from environmental collapse. Uh, and so we were able to get real. Um, with perspective and tangible example of how we could fix and help the situation and get some progress moving. Mm, very interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. And you guys are doing a great job at anticipating my next questions for you too, because Katie had a great lead in to um, the question that I wanted to ask you, Jim, about, about challenges that are sort of currently plaguing the permitting process. There's an opportunity statement in the report that highlights some of those. And Katie you know, started referencing the timeframes that we're talking about, the sort of layers, the things that might expire. So Jim, I'm wondering if you can offer some additional perspective on the challenges related to permitting that the group identified? Sure. Let me begin first with time. Uh, time is everything. Uh, we have this urgency that's now amplified not only with net zero by 2050, for which we've got, you know, 25 plus years to do that, but we now have an energy security imperative and we now have this very dramatic national security imperative um, to build a cleaner, more resilient grid in America and then share the benefit of that experience with counterparties all around the world. So the time in which to do this just impressively short. Um, delay is the biggest problem. Uh, every year, a infrastructure and energy projects is delayed, it costs 20% more to build. 
the cost of capital, so the cost you pay to get funding, increases as well. And then the, and then the environmental and carbon cost not only increases every year delay, but increases cumulatively because every ton of carbon not avoided this year is two tons next year, and it's three tons the year after that because it accumulates in the atmosphere. So the other way to say that is a project completed this year saves 10 more tons over the next, you know, over the next 10 years than a project completed 10 years from now. So there's this huge compounding value to moving much more quickly than we have in the past. And as Katie identified, uh, we are experiencing not just in the U.S., but also, you know, all the major developed countries, are, things are slowing down, not speeding up. Um, so time matters. Time matters a lot. Uh, secondly, is the opportunity. The opportunity matters a lot, which is when we move to a cleaner, more resilient energy systems, uh, those systems are not only helping us abate greenhouse gases more rapidly, they're also finishing the job on cutting air pollution and improving human health. And they're also, if you do this right, will enable us to actually convert brownfield and uh, the harms and ravages that are being um, incurred in environmental justice communities um, converts those communities to green fields with good family wage jobs uh, supporting the next generation of infrastructure with a net positive environmental outcome rather than what they're currently experiencing which is a net negative environmental situation so that is a um, just a, just a massive uh, opportunity for redevelopment. And it also means restoration of these communities as well. There's a lot of social capital and physical capital around that that's built up, whether it's churches, schools, community centers, uh, playgrounds and parks, um, you know, that are kind of, they've been left behind along with the people. Um, this is a chance to, you know, bring great resources um, and enable the communities that supported our industrial past um, to support our clean energy future. So these are the, you know, these are the big items. I'll note a few other just bureaucratic elements. Um, I just saw a study, um, actually it was quoted by John Podesta last week at the Sierra Week uh, by Jesse Jenkins that, that implies that you're going to need about 10,000 projects between now and 2030 to stay on track to net zero by 2050. And then we'll need another 40,000 projects between 2030 and 2050. We, we've never built and approved, you know, gone through the approval process on that quantity of projects before. And it just, it just, you know, defines the problem, you know, to, to site, to permit and interconnect, this requires us to rethink it. And, and the old methods that Katie tried, that I tried, that our other counterparties tried of administrative reform, um, we know that it will not um, meet the moment in terms of what's actually required to move these projects. Uh, which brings me full circle to the point that Katie led with, which is um, we've been doing this a long time. And one of the first precepts, one of the first sort of concepts that really um, dawned on all of us is when you look at the clean energy projects and supporting infrastructure that's called for and funded by the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill, and to a certain extent, the CHIPS Act as well, all of that infrastructure is clean and compliant. Um, you know, nobody's allowed to build a project that doesn't comply with the environment and natural resource protection laws. And the fact of the matter is everyone does build projects that comply because if they don't, um, you have to do self-auditing, self-reporting, inspection, and be subject to enforcement. And so the important revelation for all of us is why, why are we... Why are we waiting? Why are we taking so long to permit the stuff that we know is actually compliant 
clean and environmentally protective, uh, why don't we reserve our permitting resources and our siting resources for the stuff that's a lot more complicated, chemical plants and petrochemical facilities and, and other things that actually have you know, quite significant, potentially negative environmental dimension. Why, why don't we move the resources and focus them on that and, and relieve ourselves of the burden of delay uh, with the systems that we all know we want and need. So that was the final revelation of this. And that's really what the report is built upon, this, this idea of um, just say yes uh, to getting the stuff we've now funded and we want, as opposed to uh, a lot of uh, noise around no. Hmm. Yeah. Jim, I think you just landed on the the title of our podcast right there. Just say yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so Katie, let's let's talk about yes then. And the group endorsed four core ways, and I'm going to quote again here, to quote, modernize and reform our environmental review and permitting processes to implement decarbonization projects with the scale, speed, and predictability that confronting the climate crisis requires. So that's very much in keeping with the challenges we just heard about from Jim. Around scale, we've got to build tremendously more of these projects than we've done in the past. The speed has been slowing down instead of speeding up. So what are those four core ways that the group um, endorsed related to, to meeting some of those challenges? Yeah, great. So four core um, principles here and then a couple of cross-cutting points as well. Let me pick up exactly where Jim just left us because the nature of the project is really important to keep in mind. Far from injuring the environment, these are projects we need to fend off environmental collapse. And sorry to use that stark language, but look, that's what we're starting to face here. The nature of the project figured into our shaping up of our recommendations in a core way. So the four recommendations um, that are central to what we brought forward is one, the notion of immediate approval. I'll come back to it. Second, accelerated approval. Third, accelerated adjudications. And fourth, ensuring conformity and alignment with state and local authorities as well as federal. So going back to the top, the nature of the project is really important. When we know that project is itself a, a zero, a net zero emitter, uh, emitter, a project that can help drive individually or when scaled a gigaton of carbon reduction, that type of project plus the location of the project, if that project is being cited on an already developed property, then those are the categories of projects, immediate approval. Let's get her done. Think a solar project on a former coal-fired power plant site. Second was accelerated approval. There, again, the project might be well understood. We know that this is a project that is going to be one of the life savers for the environment, helping drive at least a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere. But it might be sited somewhere where there would be a new impact that needs to be considered, um, either a greenfield solar development or think of maybe larger scale linear developments like interregional transmission projects. There, it's not an automatic or immediate approval, but it would be accelerated in an open transmission transparent but time-bound process and a process also that is focused laser-like just on that area that we know should uniquely be examined in this 
project, that green field, that farm, for example, where the new uh, solar facility is going to go. Accelerated adjudications was the third point, critically important. If we do all the work to cut the excess and unnecessary processing time out of the permitting, but then wind up for years wrangling in court, we have not addressed the situation. Uh, here, of course, there will be people who have concern. Well, what do we mean by that? Is that going to deny someone their day in court? We argue the opposite, that justice delayed is justice denied. And so to have a crisp uh, process that itself, again, is time-bound, we think is actually critical to having either proponents or opponents have an effective day in court. And one of the things that we try to drive home here is if you think some of these concepts are of concern, do not mistake them for totally novel new things that we don't have experience with. Even in something as critically important as foreign investment in national security sensitive technologies, we have a process that we laid out as a people and as a federal government that time bounds that to something on the order of a uh, uh, hundred days of, of review to figure out whether or not that investment is going to be allowed. We can handle these things when big things are at stake. And let's face it, something very big is at stake uh, and deserves this kind of uh, more crisp and front of mind thoughtful treatment state and local conformity, here we take a pretty tough stand. Uh, if you're not with the program, you're not getting a piece of the program. <laughs> and essentially, if the state and local governments do not want to align their respective authorities to these principles of immediate or accelerated approval and principles of accelerated uh, adjudication, then they also can help themselves not to a piece of these new infrastructure dollars. Now, some will be aghast at that too, but hey, it's not new or novel. In the federal transportation law, we have had something very similar with respect to Clean Air Act uh, conformity. So that's not totally new, but it does say if you want the benefits of the program, you have to help make the program a success. And last two quickly, but so important, cross-cutting themes. Just as we are no rollback on the environmental front, it's no lockout in terms of citizen voice and community engagement. Uh, we lift up great examples. Uh, one, for example, happening in, in Washington, D.C., um, process facilitated with a neutral uh, mediator, an arbitrator who brings a community group together with the project proponent. The project proponent pays for the community group to be able in a sophisticated way to engage in the discussion, uh, uh, time-bound decision-making, and often an upshot of equity is really equity, where the community says, listen, we don't want to just be heard. We want a piece of the action. We're hosting you here, and we'd like to be uh, uh, dealt into this project in a way that we can have some shared ownership. Great examples out there. And last cross-cutting theme, I mentioned big projects like uh, major transmission uh, projects. These underscore the need for upfront work. 
where the federal government, for example, together with state governments can map out the migratory pathways of birds or other uh, species that might be important to know in a big project. Uh, we can map out critical ecosystems ahead of time and not have to do it project by project by project. That way, when that permit is submitted, it very well and truly can avail of accelerated uh, review because that upfront work has, is, is there uh, and is being put to work. And last, last I'll say on this is uh, I'm interested to see now that um, Europe has just announced a very similar, it's announced a while, uh, some months ago, but now has agreed to a plan where each of the member states of the European community will pre-map developable, if that's a word, um, uh, areas within a year. And then I think it's something like a 30-day approval process for projects proposed uh, in those pre-mapped areas. That's stuff we can do and get the job done. Hmm. Katie, that was fantastic. And it shows sort of the richness of the conversations that the working group had. Um, And certainly, I will say, I definitely have heard multiple references to the work that you all have done, to the report as kind of a a fairly seminal um, collection of thinkers and ideas on this topic. But but Jim, I I did want to ask you as well, you know, there are, in the subsequent almost two years since your report came out, there have been a number of kind of other recommendations, proposals floating around. As Katie mentioned, you know, other countries are, are kind of moving forward with, with different ways of tackling permitting reform. So I, I'm going to ask you to, at the risk of sort of asking you to talk about the intellectual competition, if you will, I, I wondered if you could speak to any particular suggestions from other proposals, other conversations around permitting reform that sort of jump out to you as perhaps important additions to what you talked about in 2021 or um, other things that that folks are thinking about that you found worthy of note? Uh, Yeah, happy to do that. Um, Over the last 20 years, uh, permitting reform has typically been a one-off. NEPA reform or programmatic permits under the Clean Water Act, or, you know, it's been targeted things. Fracking, for example, there was one in the 2005 energy bill that actually, um, you know, created a, you know, super fast track for, for fracking. And as a result, by the way, we got a lot of fracking in America. Interestingly, that same process could be used for geothermal, but the legislation didn't include geothermal, which, you know, would have been, you know, zero emission. So, um, so we know how to do this on a one-off basis, and that's what the intellectual capital has been until recently. Um, I want to just, I couldn't applaud Senator Manchin more for pushing permitting in the federal Congress, in the U.S. Congress, to the forefront, to underlining that it's no good to have the money in the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act. It's no good to have that money available if nothing can get built. And he's really the first one to articulate the need for a comprehensive approach to getting projects moving forward quickly. And so, you know, he is, you know, we're in the first quarter of a four quarter football game here, and he has put a lot of points on the board um, with the comprehensiveness of his proposal. Um, The House just issued a proposal themselves um, uh, just uh, last week, last Wednesday. Um, And there's, you know, there's a couple dozen different approaches. Uh, I would underline that all of them fall way short of what we need to get to the shared objectives on uh, energy security, national security, and climate security. And by falling way short is 
they're just they come from the old school of thinking that we need to tweak the administrative processes and somehow the federal government and the state governments through the um you know through their various uh, regulatory bodies can you know just put a little more money in and you know have more people working on it and all of a sudden everything gets faster so huge effort underway the bills are all interesting and comprehensive and that's nice to see but um nothing comes close to what we have recommended um and everything's more complicated than what we've recommended so what i would suggest is bigger and simpler is the way forward on getting to an immediate yes on the stuff that's already been declared necessary by the three pieces of federal legislation um and then locationally you know, it's funny, we forget, you know, we, you know, environmental justice is so important and community engagement is so important, but we've now had this incredibly robust public process around the three bills where there's, you know, there's lots of bipartisan agreement, by the way, including in the Inflation Reduction Act, there are a lot of Republicans that support the clean energy title of that act, uh, you know, that would have otherwise voted for it. You know, we've had this clear statement by elected representatives on behalf of their communities on, on what we need. So that's, we didn't have that before this report. So that was a big deal. In addition, when you get to the ground level, um, the Inflation Reduction Act creates this new category of energy communities, which have already now been identified and worked through by the Department of Energy and posted by Census Tract online. There's a bill led by uh, Cory Booker and Tim Scott in the Senate that it's a five-year process of identifying opportunity zones. So the communities themselves have come forward and made clear where and, and, and what kind of investment they want in their communities. We've had a 20-year process on designating and giving uh, green lights to brownfield redevelopment and then at the state and local level, um, there's economic development zones and just good old fashioned zoning. So, so we, we, the other opportunity we have is to, is to look at the locations, the on the ground locations where the communities are already engaged on a programmatic basis and have already said yes to please invest here. Um, I think that's the first best place to start. I think that you know helps us get 70 to 80% of the way there, by the way. You know, we're doing some study on that to, to affirm that point. Um, and then we can, again, take our focused resources and, and now start looking at more of the one-offs. You know, these mediated processes that Katie talked about, you know, individual projects or these linear projects like uh, pipelines and transmission lines. Um, so let's put the, the bureaucratic resources to work uh, again, on these more complex or these more singular um, opportunity requirements and let the let the easy stuff go through. So that's what's exciting. So it's this combination of engagement, but a clear declaration of what we want. Um, and we didn't have that when we started our process. In fact, you know, Katie and I were chuckling about this a little while ago. You know, boy, what a great favor was done to all of us. But I do want to end and underline on this point that, you know, heroic efforts have come forward to put this to at the top of the policy agenda. And what's on the policy agenda right now is still far short of what we need. So how can we build the alliance? You know, this only works if everybody agrees this works. This is not one of those where you quote compromise. This is one where everybody benefits at a scale that's on par with building the uh, the interstate highway system, the railroad system, rural electrification, building the big hydropower systems in America. We've done this before. We've actually, we've done it in 15 years, 15 to 20 years, each one of those examples. Uh, we can do it again, but it requires everybody agreeing, saying yes. That's what I love about this topic. It only works if everybody agrees they actually want it. Um, and I think they will. And, 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 and I look forward to that outcome.
<laughs> Jim, I love that that's the thing that you love about this conversation is that it requires some level of consensus. That sounds quite difficult, but also um, a fantastic opportunity if we can get there, I think. So I really appreciate your optimism here. And so I, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Uh, and in fact, I'm tempted to keep going, but I know that we are nearing the end of end of our time. So before I turn to top of the stack, uh, Katie, I just wanted to give you a chance to sort of wrap up with your own, any prognostications that you might be willing to make about what happens next. And, and Jim did a fantastic job of laying out how bills that have been introduced um, between the release of your report and now have really perhaps changed the permitting reform conversation. Maybe there's an extra sense of momentum behind it. So what do you think happens next with the permitting reform conversation, either on the Hill or kind of among a broader consensus group that, that I think Jim was referencing? Yeah, absolutely. I, and and a couple of things. First, to continue in uh, Jim's um, stream of thinking there, another, I think, very useful effort, uh, the Sustainable Energy and Environment Coalition on the House side group of uh, members, uh, good reading in terms of um, and their analysis, especially with respect to the transmission system, and them uh, coming forward with ideas like uh, in a, it, it calling on utilities to do a once-and-done uh, effort to uh, upgrade their own distribution grids so that we don't have a project-by-project long effort in terms of interconnect studies. Uh, let's do that once. Let's socialize the cost because we all benefit with a more reliable, resilient grid get that done. They also set out to plug some holes like in FERC 2222, uh, getting rid of the opt-out, enabling states to uh, opt out of considering distributed energy resources you know, as resources that can and should uh, be part um, of the uh, overall generation assets available. So these are, again, great um, insights and ideas. And I reference them here, Kristen, relevant to your question, because because um, the fact that many or some of these recommendations are coming forward from Democrats is a new new. And it is a newly taken safe space for Democrats to say, yes, some change is necessary, that frankly, they might have been reticent to say before, uh, out of a fear that if, you know, you give an inch, people take a yard. I think now, especially with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act passing, with the commitment the Biden administration has made to dramatically dialing down carbon in the United States, uh, Democrats' investment in the success of those worthy, mighty initiatives um, is, I think, creating some space for them to say, look, we're going to ensure against any rollback of environmental protections, but we now um, want to help drive where the paperwork is actually what is rolling back the protection of our environment because we're not able to accelerate these new clean projects that we desperately need. That gives me a lot of uh, of hope that there is um, some uh, room for uh, bipartisan uh, action here. And uh, while I would not bet the kids' college tuition, for sure, I think this uh, subject of permitting reform is among a very small number that has some bipartisan mojo and an actual 
a decent chance of seeing its way across a finish line this year. Hmm, fantastic. And also, Katie, I think you just came up with a, a potential title for the podcast as well, which is Bipartisan Mojo. We're definitely going to have to use that one someplace. Um, well, this has been so great. Again, I wish I had my more time to ask more questions, but I really appreciate your comments. And I do want to close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. I'm not sure if you two are regular podcast listeners, but uh, if you are not, this is your chance to recommend more good content for our listeners. And so, Jim and Katie, what's on the top of your respective stacks? Jim, I'll start with you. So, if we are not successful with the acceleration that we described, I think it's worth reading a book called Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson, who describes in quite vivid and um, sensational and at times quite humorous detail uh, what geoengineering will otherwise be required uh, to address um, the situation. So I highly recommend uh, giving that a read. It's a, it's a romp through um, a very different uh, perspective of the near future. Hmm. Interesting. Katie, what about you? Oh, boy. <laughs> that will keep me up at night, I think. Uh, the two that I would uh, uh, quickly um, reference and recommend, not necessarily specific writings, but I think um, Jesse Jenkins, a uh, professor at Princeton, has really distinguished himself as a great uh, analyst and thinker about what's actually happening out there um, in the landscape of whether we are or not encouraging renewable energy, as well as some of these critical uh, electric market um, and electric system reforms that we that we desperately need. So Jesse, I think, has some valuable insights to share. And then I mentioned just being inspired that it's not a zero-sum game in terms of community engagement and seeing projects progress. In fact, quite to the opposite. Uh, but one of the people I think has been most effective in bringing fresh new thinking about the idea of equity is equity um, and uh, seat at the table you know, shouldn't be a euphemism for just talking at people, but the people really get dealt in. Uh, and one of the most creative thinkers, I think, in that regard and actors is Donnell Baird, uh, who leads Block Power, which is a great uh, company that is bringing renewable energy assets uh, to urban communities uh, and really creating a model where those communities have a real uh, seat at the table and a real um, uh, stake and say in in these very promising projects. And of course, Donnell was a was a very valuable member of our working group. Exactly. Oh, fantastic! All right, great. Well, thank you for those recommendations, for your thoughts. It's it's really been a pleasure, and I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Be well, Jim. Till next time. You as well, Katie. See you next week. <laughs> You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.